Acts chapter 21, reading verses 1 through 14, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course unto Coas, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. Now when we had discovered that Cyprus, Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed unto Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unlaid her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way, and they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship, and they returned home again. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day... That in the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was coming to us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth his girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean you to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus." And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Let us pray. Our Father, we come to this time in the meeting where, as we worship you now, we worship you by opening the word to hear it and to hear teaching on it with the desire that you would be glorified And that the light of the truth would shine in on us to remove from us by the power of your spirit those things which are not pleasing to you and by your grace to conform us more into the image of Jesus Christ. So we pray now that the preaching of the word would be accompanied by the power of your spirit to apply the word to us. Lord, have your perfect work in us through this time. And we worship you now during this sermon saying you are worthy to be heard. You are worthy that we would look to your word, to the word of truth, to know what your revealed will is and what the truth about you and your glorious gospel and will for your people is. All these things we pray for your glory and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, good to have our Bibles in our hands this morning. 
good to have God's word that never changes to direct us. So thankful, brethren, that uh, the elders here and anyone who ever teaches in this church, um, it's so, we're so grateful to have the word of God. We are to be good stewards of the word of God. We are to teach the word of God. We are to exegetically preach the word of God, not isogetically. We read the scriptures and we allow the scriptures to speak to us, amen, and tell us what God is saying And this morning, by the good providence of God, and I don't say that lightly, I really believe that by the good providence of God, we have safely arrived in chapter 21 of the book of Acts. I know it seems like we've been here a while. It's going on three years. It's uh, it's quite amazing when you think about that as we've been here in this glorious verse-by-verse examination of the Lord's inspired essay, amen, in which he has indeed for us um, chronicled and archived For all of eternity, the immutable record concerning the history of the gospel of Christ, brethren, as it began and as it has been marching across the world and as it continues even to this very hour, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, powerfully going in and going into the hearts of stone and taking out that heart of stone, putting in that heart of flesh and a mind then that would not be an enmity with God, but rather one who would begin to understand the glorious spiritual truths that we find in God's holy word. That's power. Every believing one, every believing one, amen? And uh, so often you, we read these glorious texts, whosoever believeth, amen? And I believe that, whosoever believeth, every believing one who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? They make up the church of God. This is what we are, the church of Christ. This is who we are. We are the church of the living God and As Paul, you remember, is making his way to Jerusalem, and Luke continues here in our text to pen the inspired firsthand record of their hurried port-by-port voyage. You remember, he has taken up an offering from the Gentile churches, and he has and is on his way to take that up to the church at Jerusalem to bring relief to the saints who are there. And I want you to see what Luke does in our text here this morning. When I say firsthand, I want you to notice something in our text. Look there at verses 1 and 2. I want you to notice the word we. So again, we see here Luke as he's traveling along now. Look at verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, It came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came to a straight course unto Coos, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence unto Patera. Verse 2, we see it again, finding a ship, sailing over unto Phoenicia. We went aboard and set forth. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 10. Look at verse number 12 there again. We, we, we. He is giving us again, brethren, an inspired, first-hand account of what's taking place here in chapter 21. Look at verse number 12. Again there the Bible says, And when we heard these things, both we and they at that place, besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Look at verse 14. Right at the close of our text this morning again. He's telling us that he's there. It's an inspired account, but it is a first-hand account of what's taking place. Verse 14 says this, And when he could not be persuaded, we see saying the will of the Lord be done. Now it's interesting there in verses, in verse number one specifically, and in verse number two, Luke says, we were gotten from them, 
a phrase, brethren, and an action verb that really draws our religious affections very uh, clearly and carefully, if you would. It literally means to tear oneself away. And so again, we see here, brethren, as we've seen, Paul's pastoral love for the, for the brethren, his great love, his pastoral care, all of these things that he has for the brethren. And literally, it literally means to tear oneself away, to draw, to pull away from, to drag away, to literally, brethren. The word, it's only used four times in the New Testament. It literally means to unsheath a sword with force applied. Now, brethren, that is a stunning thing. This is what we're seeing again. It's this great love that they have one for another for the gospel of Christ that they've been united together in. In fact, I said it's only used four times. It's used in the, in the gospel of Matthew. In fact, I want you to see here so you understand what Paul is saying when he's saying that they had gotten from them this idea of tearing himself away with force because of the great love. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. This is one of the other times in the New Testament that this word is used, and it's a very familiar portion of Scripture. It's a very familiar scene to all of us who are Bible believers. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Look there. We'll begin reading in verse number 47. Matthew 26. Look at verse number 47. The Bible says, And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves, and the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same is he. Hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus, and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Verse 51. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched forth out his hand and drew out his sword. This is the idea. The idea here that Paul is saying, this great love with which he had as we've been seeing, as we've been experiencing. And brethren, as a, as a pastor, as an elder, as one who has been saved for a long, long time, that is a great source of encouragement, amen, for me to love you in such a way in a, with a Christ-like love as well as you love me as you see my warts and all my things that I have, amen. So again, we see here this great love that Paul has for the church, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, what does he do? He reveals to us Paul's Christ-like love that he has for the church, for the brethren. And so as he's getting ready here, and we're again seeing, if you will, this inspired geography lesson following Paul as he's on his way to Jerusalem. So they got on the ship, they set out to sea, and they sailed south to the island of Cus where they anchored for the night. The next day, Luke says that they sailed southwest to the island of Rhodes, and from there they docked at Patera. At the harbor of Patera, they changed ships. Of course, this is what they did. They found a ship that is heading to the direction that they are going, and they boarded a large merchant ship, of course, that would be able to, if you will, it'd be like climbing on an airplane today and being able to fly from China to here without stopping. This is what they did. They got on this large merchant ship that would take the 400-mile voyage where they were headed to Tyre. And when their ship landed in Tyre, it had to be unloaded. This vast, if you will, uh, amount of cargo, which took several days. In fact, if you read there, Acts chapter 21, look what, look what Luke records under the inspiration of God. Look at here what God sovereignly does, what the Spirit uh, providentially does as Paul lands there in, in Tyre. Look there, if you would, at 21. Look at verses 2, 3, and 4. This is really quite interesting when you consider this. And finding a ship sailing over onto Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. 
And when we had discovered Cyprus, we left, left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unladen her burden. And so uh, Luke is very particularly to let us know that he's, the ship's going to be unladen there again. That is the sovereign hand of the Spirit of God uh, providentially allowing him to spend seven days with these disciples that we're going to take a look at. Look there again and find the disciples. We tarried there seven days who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And so again, as we consider this and we, we think, brethren, about what the Holy Ghost had done earlier. When Paul was getting on the first ship, you remember that he had to wait. He had to wait several days for the ship to be loaded. And what did that give him the opportunity to do? He called the elders, right? He was in Miletus. So the ship's being loaded. The Spirit of God allows this glorious few days for him to meet with the elders to exhort the elders at Ephesus. Now here as the ship is being unloaded. The Spirit of God, again, brother, nothing is by accident, nothing is by chance, it's all directed by sovereign God. And so here we have the unloading, what seems just something minute in Scripture, the unloading of a ship, and yet here we see the Spirit's direction, His sovereignty, as He allows that to take place. And it's during this time, brethren, amen, that the disciples tell Paul, they say unto him through the Spirit, that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And it is here, brother. <laughs> Again, you know, the scriptures have been attacked from the very beginning. And it is here, this particular text again, which really uh, is so deep, brother, and we could be here for hours and hours and hours concerning this, but it is here where many attack the scripture here. This time, as uh, Paul is told not to go up to Jerusalem. Many have said, have said that Paul here ignores the Spirit of God and rebels against him, knowingly disobeying him. Now, whoa, brethren, I, I don't even like to utter those words. When you say those kinds of things, you must be extremely careful. Really? Now, brethren, here's the questions really before us this morning. Is this a prohibition or a warning to Paul? This is the question that you have to ask yourself. See, this goes somewhere. This goes to the heart of Scripture. This goes to the integrity of God. This goes to the integrity of His Word, the truthfulness of His Word. And we'll see that here in a moment, why this is so important. You ask yourself, is it a prohibition by the Spirit, or is it simply a warning by the Spirit? That's the question you have to ask. Now, let me define the word rebellion. (laughs) When I was studying this out, to have someone utter the words that the Apostle Paul is in rebellion. Do you know what rebellion is? It's an open and avowed renunciation of the authority to which one owes his allegiance. Brethren, do you think Paul here, all of the sudden, all of a sudden he's going to disobey God and he's going to be in rebellion against God. He's going to openly, in front of these disciples, disobey God. Do you really believe that that is what's going on here? I mean, you have to be, uh, well, what's the terminology? I mean, you have to be an reprobate to think that the Apostle Paul here is disobeying God in any stretch of the imagination, that he would indeed disobey the will of God? Brethren, look at verse 14. What is the text all about? It's all about whose will? It's about the will of God being done. This is what it's about. This is why I always tell people, listen, when I was, when the Lord saved me, Back in 1987, me and the brother were just talking. I know the exact day it happened. I know the exact day he changed me like that, brother, and I was a 
Paul called himself the chief of sinners. I was right there. I was right with him. Right there. And that change that took place in my own heart, you know it. You understand it, that the Spirit of God alone does that. Amen? But you see this here. It's quite a stunning and amazing thing. They're concerned about the will of the Lord. This is what it's about, the will of the Lord. Look at verse 14. Again, we've read it, but we'll read it again. Amen? And when, we, uh, when he could not be persuaded, we see saying, the will of the Lord be done. And again, this is not the first time, it's not the second time, it's not the third time that we've seen. Paul's concern is about the will of the Lord. What is the Lord's will for me concerning this trip to Jerusalem where I'm taking this, if you will, this Gentile offering up to that church which is full of Jewish Christians? Again, as we have seen, it's an amazing thing. Listen, brother, and turn with me, if you would, to Acts 23. Is Paul being disobedient? Is he being rebellious towards the Spirit of God? May it never be. May it never be. Look at Acts chapter 23. If he's rebelling against the Spirit, then he's rebelling against the Lord Jesus, too. Look what Jesus says here in Acts chapter 23. Look there, if you would, at verse number 10. Again, just allowing the Scripture to speak. Verse number 10, And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force uh, from among them and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. Be of good cheer, Paul. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must also thou bear witness at Rome. Is Paul being disobedient when the Lord Jesus himself, Christ, says himself, Well, Paul, you've witnessed in Jerusalem. You're doing exactly what the Spirit of God has called you to do, to go to Jerusalem, to witness to me of me there. No, he was not being disobedient. In fact, look what he tells King Agrippa. Look at Acts chapter 26. <laughs> Again, Paul has, if you will, a continual track record of not disobeying God, of not, if you will, being defiant of God, but rather being obedient. And this is what we see over and over again. Again, just a few portions of Scripture, brother, this morning to see this lie, because this lie is connected to where we end up. If you think he's being disobedient, he's being unholy, and he's being rebellious to God, this leads to utter unholiness. Look there, if you would, Acts chapter 26. Look at verse number 10. Which thing I also did where? In Jerusalem. And many of the saints did shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to, be, to blaspheme. Uh, and being exceeding mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Verse 12, whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw the, uh, in the way a light from heaven above, and brightness of the sun shining round about me, and them that journeyed with me. And when we were fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me, saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is, is it hard for thee to kick against the pricks? Remember, we went over this a long time ago when he first was giving his testimony in Acts chapter 9. The Bible says in verse 15, I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. 
But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and those things in which I appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom I now send thee to open their eyes. He goes on and on and on. He's speaking here about his glorious his, uh, his glorious confirmation. In the end of it, when he's done standing there talking, he says, I was not disobedient to the vision. He speaks of this vision. He's standing before the king, and he says, I was not disobedient, O king. I did exactly what the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus told me to do. Paul's not in the habit of being disobedient and, if you will, defying the will of God. It's an amazing thing. In fact, <laughs> look here. The opposite is true. Again, he says, I'm obedient. I did what the Lord Jesus has called me to do. I did what the Spirit of God told me to do. In fact, again, we have a track record of Paul doing exactly what the Spirit of God tells him to do. Remember back in Acts chapter 16? Turn back there with me, if you would, for just a moment. I want you to see this. When the Spirit says no, Paul says no. When the Spirit says no twice, Paul says no twice. When the Spirit says yes, go to Macedonia, what does he do? He's obedient. He goes to Macedonia. How can one dare? It's just like, I don't want to get sidetracked. I get sidetracked easy enough. But you remember that text when we were preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and many liberals say Jesus didn't know the day or the hour. You remember that? You remember that, huh? What Jesus is omniscient up to that text, and then after, and then during that text, he's not. But at, right after the text, he's omniscient, brethren. You better get your Hebrew hat on before you start saying God stop being the Lord Jesus, stop being omniscient, because He wasn't. Amen. If you understand Hebrewism, if you understand the Jewish way of life, you know what I taught on that and how we cannot say that. It's the same thing here. Paul did not stop being obedient to the Spirit of God in this little window, and then right after, he's obedient to God again, not by any stretch. Look at Acts chapter 16, just again to show us here the faithfulness of Scripture, the faithfulness of Paul by the power of the Spirit of God. May we all be like that. Look at Acts chapter 16. Look at verse number 5. And so were all the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, and after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Well, you think the Holy Ghost is so weak and so powerless that the Apostle Paul is just going to disobey him and just going to do whatever the Apostle Paul wants? No, like I said, when the Holy Spirit here tells them no twice, what did Paul do? Nope, I'm not going. I want you to go over here to Macedonia. All right, I'm an obedient servant of Christ. I will go. So no, no, yes, yes. The Apostle Paul here, brethren, did not just all of a sudden become disobedient and rebellious against God. In fact, what Paul does here, he interprets the action of the Holy Ghost as giving him consistent information. Remember this? He, he, the, the Spirit of God is simply doing what the Spirit of God has already done. Amen? He's already done it. This is a consistent and ongoing information that the Spirit of God is giving to Paul. Remember that? Well, let's look at that then. If you, well, you're like me, maybe you're forgetful. Look at Acts chapter 20. The Holy Ghost is just simply giving him information and giving him and continuing this advanced warning. Paul, here's what's going to happen. When you get to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. He does it once. He does it twice. He does it again. He is continually warning Paul 
about what's coming when he gets to Jerusalem. Look at Acts chapter 20. Look at verses 22 through 24. Again, just as way of reminder. Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither account of my life dear unto myself, so I might finish my course with joy. The ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so, again, all this, all the Spirit is doing here is, again, continuing to give him information and an ongoing, consistent warning. Paul, when you get there, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to take place. In fact, in our text, look at verses 10 and 11. He did it in chapter 20. He's doing it here now. Look at chapter, or verse number 11, uh, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 21. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so that... So all the Jews at Jerusalem bind this man and that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Again, what's he doing? The Spirit of God is simply giving Paul information and consistently warning him and saying, Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, this is where I'm sending you. This is what you can expect. So this is what we have going on. In fact, I like what John Gill said. He said this, not that the Spirit of God in these persons contradicted his own impulse in the apostle by which he was moved to go to Jerusalem. The sense is this, that these disciples by the Spirit of prophecy knew that if the apostle went to Jerusalem, many evil things would befall him there. And again, brethren, this is simply what it is. It is not a prohibition. It is indeed a warning. Paul, again, this is what's coming your way. This is exactly what's going to be taking place. So Paul, as he's working his way, his way there, look at verses 5 through 9. Look at verses 5 through 9. So again, we're watching this inspired geography lesson as Paul is heading up to Jerusalem. Look at verse number 5. And again, he just simply lays it out there. If we had a map, again, as I've said a hundred times, we could show you. Here's, here's where they went. This is the inspired direction. This is where they went. No question about it. Look at verse 5. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way. And, we all, and they all brought, on us, uh, brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. Verse 6, And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship, and they returned home again. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day, when we were at Paul's company, departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which is one of the seven, and abode with him. Verse 9, and the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. So again, brethren, what are we seeing here? After a week at Tyre, amen, the ship's ready to set sail again. Paul gets on the ship. And they are headed, if you will, to, to Jerusalem. Now, we notice what Luke does. Again, he tells us here in this text that the entire church, the men, the women, the children, all accompanied him to the harbor and knelt down on the beach in a final prayer. Now, brother, there's a lot of this going on. Remember, this happened when he left Ephesus. The same thing. Look there, if you would, at verse 36 of chapter 20. Again, just to show you and remind you of what's taking place. Paul's great love for them, their great love for him. And <clears throat> I was thinking about this, um, about this, this, this whole thing, this 
constant preaching, this relationship, and then the leaving. I mean, on and on. There's always a parting that seems to be taking place. And I was thinking about Brother Keith. He uh, lasered that, my favorite hymn for me. Huh? What a day that will be. Amen? And part of it is what? What a day that will be. There will be no sorrow over there. There will be no more what? You can sing it. There will be no more parting over there. But brethren, here, this is what we see. I've been talking to our children a lot about that, about eternality, being thinking of the eternal things, making sure that you are right with the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have indeed, as Paul said, you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, that it's real, that it's not a fake thing, amen? How many of our children have we seen that have grown up, we talked about it, that have grown up in the church? They've grown up in the church. They've said the right things. They've acted the right way. Isaac sitting here. Hannah sitting back there. Our younger children are sitting here. Amen. All the while, it looked like they were saved. Can I just use this as an example? This is a glorious thing concerning the sovereignty of God and salvation. Again, here they all are looking like they're saved. They move out a little bit and they realize very quickly that what they had said before, what they had done before was indeed not the Lord calling them, but themselves. And it wasn't until Isaac's crumpled on the floor, till Hannah's down on, the, down on her knees, understanding that God truly is saving them. Hey, brothers, as a parent, as a parent, nothing could be greater. Nothing greater could be said when you look at your child and say, praise God's holy name, that he saved you. Amen? Not that you were saved because of anything I did or anything our parents have done. God sovereignly saved them. What a glorious thing. What an amazing reality, what an amazing truth for God to bring to a child's mind who grew up in the church and has heard all the right words and said all the right things and they realize they're as lost as can be. That's God's sovereign hand. That's Him working out salvation according to His glorious purposes here. And again, there'll be no sorrows there. It's the same scene here when Paul's leaving Miletus. They gather together. The elders are there. The Bible says that they kneel down together and they pray together. Again, this parting, this thing that continues to take place. And they then made their way to Ptolemaeus, about 25 miles south of Tyre, where they stopped and docked in the harbor. That was built, by the way, by King Herod, in case you didn't know that. It was a glorious harbor there that was built just like his temple, right? Just like the temple. It was a glorious thing that Herod had built. And they docked there and they... They sent, spent the night there, and it was indeed the, the port to Jerusalem where Paul is heading. Amen. Again, this is where he's going. He continues on and on and on. The next day, Luke says, they landed in Caesarea, stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist for, about, for a number of days. In fact, brethren, this is interesting. You know, like I said, I think we've been going through the book of Acts now for about three years it's stunning. Do you know that it's, there's been 20 years that have elapsed as <clears throat> Philip shows up again in our text? It's an amazing thing that Philip, here's Paul now, he goes to Caesarea, he goes to the evangelist. Now 20 years have passed, and he's got what, four daughters who are, prophecy, who are prophesying? I mean, it's a stunning thing. In fact, let me show you this. Because Philip was there, just as the scripture says. Look at Acts chapter 8, the first time he shows up, Philip the evangelist. I want you to see this. Again now, 20 years have passed. Here's Paul now. I, I think about us, Howard. I think about us, Dean, when we first met. All were young. All had, right? None of our hair was gray. 
Remember that? I mean, my kids look at my pictures back when I was in my 30s, and they go, who is that guy? Look at that. Dark hair, just young looking. Here we are, brother, and 20 years later. And look at this. Think of that reunion, Paul. 20 years. Here he is coming and staying with Philip the Evangelist. And I want you to see again the first time 20 years earlier as we remember when we went through this together. Again, it's always good to remind ourselves what did Paul say? It's, it's good for you. It's good for me. It's not a burden to remind ourselves of these glorious truths. Look at Acts chapter 8. Look at verse 39. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azados, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till it came where? To Caesarea. This is where he's at. Some 20 years have lapsed. Here's Paul now getting back together with the great evangelist. But while Paul is there, and again, brother, this all connects together the truthfulness of God. You have no idea the depth of this text, the importance of understanding this text biblically because of the abuse that's gone on. While Paul was at the home of Philip, Agabus, the prophet, makes his second appearance in the book of Acts when he comes down from Judea. And in the spirit of the Old Testament prophets, brethren, again, take off your American hat, take off your Western hat, you've got to put on your, your, your Middle Eastern hat, your Jewish hat to understand what's taking place here. Agabus shows up in the spirit of the Old Testament prophets. This is very important to understand what's taking place. Amen? Agabus acts out his message to Paul. This is what the Old Testament prophets often did. This is what God had them do. He has him act this thing out in front of Paul. Amen? And what he's doing is he's telling Paul again, Paul, I'm acting this out to tell you that there is certain danger coming your way. Why is that so important, brother? Why is this so important to understand it from this perspective? Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. Look what the Bible says says there, and as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost. You notice that? Thus saith the Holy Ghost. When the Holy Ghost says something, it is coming from God himself. Brethren, how many times? I don't, I don't advise this at all. How many times do you turn on your radio, do you turn on your Christian TV, and there's some guy on there saying, the Lord told me this, the Lord said this to me this week, the Lord said this, the Holy Ghost told me this. You know why this is so important? Because the Holy Ghost did do this, and he did have Agabus work this out and act this out. Because the Holy Ghost really did do that. Amen. Look what it says. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. It's amazing, brother. Let me give you a couple of examples of the Old Testament prophets who worked out the judgment of God and played it out in front of them. Remember Isaiah? Remember old Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet? The Bible says that Isaiah walked around naked. Careful now. Better go back and listen to Dean's sermon on that. God's not unholy. God's not perverted. 
God is holy and right. And when you understand how they dressed, as Brother Dean so eloquently shared to us, he's not walking around buck naked, as we would say. Amen? It's not, again, like America. We're not out shrieking. No, Isaiah wasn't shrieking down the street, okay? His undergarment was on. That was considered to be naked. When you had three or four garments that you would wear, that's how they thought. This is what it is. He's not running around buck naked. But you remember what he did. He walked around naked and barefoot to demonstrate, brethren, how the Assyrians would humiliate the Egyptians and take them captive. Do you remember that? This is what God had him do. He's playing out what God is going to do, the judgment that's going to come upon them. Jeremiah. Think of Jeremiah for a moment. Old Testament prophet. As uh, God sends him. Remember? Why is he called the weeping prophet? Well, he preached for 49 years. How many converts did he have? Anybody remember? Zero. He was called the weeping prophet in chapter 9. He was weeping over the hardness of Israel against God, their hearted hearts. And what did God have Jeremiah do? He shatters a jar of clay to show how God would cause Jerusalem to be destroyed. Again, he's acting it out. This is what Agabus is doing. He's acting out what's coming. Paul, this is what's going to happen to you. Very clearly. Ezekiel, which I thought was interesting, I, as I was studying this out, he built a model to portray the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. Go look. <laughs> it's amazing. Chapter 4, uh, if you will, uh, right there, verses 1 through 3. And then God says, hey, by the way, Jeremiah, lay on your left side. He laid on his left side, remember? That's what he did. He was, he was laying this out, acting this out to show what God is going to do. Now, it's a stunning thing, brethren, when you consider this, as we have an infallible prophecy here. You, you understand what the NRA and NRA and all these, all these crazy charismatics do, right? What do they say? Well, you realize that if you look at, at, the, at the prophecy that Agabus made, I like what one pastor said, you ain't throwing infallible prophecy under the Agabus here, Okay? Agabus was indeed infallible. He was not fallible. He was infallible because the Spirit of God is the one who told him that. That's why these false prophets can get on TV, as I said, and they can say things like this. Brethren, during the election, how many times, how many times did these false prophets get on TV and say, the Lord told me that Trump's going to win? The Lord told me this. The Lord told you nothing. Because that is not, and this, as we're going to see here, as Agabus prophesied, it was not open, it was not fallible, but that's what they think. You realize this is the only text they have. And they interpret it wrongly in an unholy way to say that when they say Trump's going to be president and he doesn't become president, well, we'll just go here. See, Agabus had an open prophecy. No, he did not. Exactly what he said, as he's living this thing out, came to pass. Exactly as he said. Look what Jesus does. I want you to see this again, keeping in mind Old Testament. Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophecies. Living and interpreting things in such a way. Look what Jesus did. We remember this in John Look there, if you would, John chapter 21. Just a couple of examples. Now, the Lord God himself, the Lord Jesus, did he ever lie? No. Did he ever sin? No. Did he ever have a term? No, no, no. He's perfect. But look what he does to Peter. 
Look at it as an Old Testament, as living in the Old Testament. Look what he does here in John chapter 21. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to us. Brethren, this is so important. It goes to the very heart of, of uh, if you will, understanding. As Spurgeon said, when you don't wander very far from the Word of God, you won't wander very far. But as soon as you do, as soon as you misinterpret something, such as these people do, you are wandering off into a wilderness that will, that will damn your soul. It's an amazing, stunning thing. Look what Jesus does here for Peter. Look at John chapter 21. Look at verse 15. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to us. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. Well, feed the young Christians. That's what he's saying, right? Feed my lambs. Look at how the, the conversation continues. He saith unto him a third, the third time. Or verse, uh, verse 16. Uh, yeah, uh, verse 16. He saith unto him a second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith to him, feed my sheep. Well, that's the older Christians, amen? So we got the younger ones, we got the older ones. He's telling them to shepherd the flock of God, to teach them, to preach to them, to be a good, kind shepherd to them. Look at verse 17. He saith unto the third time, Simon, son of Joseph, lovest thou me? And Peter agreed because he said unto him a third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep again the older Christians. Look at verse 18. This, brethren, is what Agabus did. This is exactly what Jesus does here to Peter. Look what he says. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou should be old, shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. And we had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. Let me ask you something, brother. If recorded history is right, if Josephus is right, if some of these men were right, did Jesus tell Peter here exactly how he was going to die? Did he, did, he, did, he, did he give every detail? Peter, by the way, you're going to be crucified upside down. He never gave all of that detail. But what did he do? He interpreted what he means by that. He's saying, here's what's going to happen, Peter. You're going to be taken somewhere where you don't want to go. This is what Agabus does. Exactly what Agabus says is exactly what happened. There's no openness. Again, brethren, this is so important to us because it goes to the heart of God's word. It goes to you and I as we are kept within the rails of closed scripture. It's closed. It's shut. There's no more prophecy to be made. There's no more new information that's going to come, brethren. It's closed. And when you get outside of that authority, that's what you get. You can say whatever you want. God told me this. God told me that. Oh, well, let's go to Agabus. Let me show you just exactly this principle at work. Brethren, let me ask you, was Paul bound by the Jews? <laughs> you better believe he was. You better believe it. 
Look with me, if you would, in Acts chapter 23. Yes, he was. Exactly what Agabus lived out, what he, what he played out, is exactly what happened to Paul. Was he turned over to the Gentiles? Yes, he was. Exactly as Agabus said he would. No openness, no fallible prophecy here, none. And again, when you eliminate that, You've eliminated all these ideas that these men come up with in their noggins that are unholy and so unbiblical. This is why we say, <laughs> we say it all the time, brethren. Look at Acts 21. Was he bound? Was he turned over to the Gentiles? Yes, he was. Look at Acts chapter 21. Look at verses 31. Look at verse 31. Just to show you, look at verse number 31. Exactly what he said happened is going to happen. Acts 21, look at verse 31. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Yeah, Paul had him in an uproar. Just exactly like the Spirit of God said, these things are going to befall you, Paul. What's going to befall it? Look at verse 32. Who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down onto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left, they left the beating of Paul. Paul's being beaten. Just exactly like the Spirit of God said. In every city, Paul, this is what's going to happen. And by the way, look at verse 33. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be what? Bound with two chains. There it is. Of course. There's no open theology here. There's no open prophecy here. There's no uh, fallible prophecy exactly as Agabus, the prophet, in the spirit of the Old Testament said. Paul, I'm going to take your girdle, and I'm going to tie my own hands, my own feet, because the Spirit of God says you're going to be bound when you get to Jerusalem. And yes, he was. Exactly, precisely as the Holy Spirit of God said. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, brother? Paul is indeed bound, and because of the actions of the Jews, he is indeed turned over to the Gentiles, right? As I like that, I, I wrote this in my notes. Sorry, lying, false, NAR prophets. No throwing infallible prophecy under the Agabus here. I said that already. No throwing it under there, because there is none. You realize, as I said, this is the only text, that they are in their small continuationist, apostolic continuation of the apostolic gifts minds. They have to interpret this wrong again so they can do what they do. You realize this is the only text in the New Testament. And brethren, I dare say there is no text where they believe this is, this is an open prophecy. And without this, everything they stand for, all that they are standing on, falls. You can't go to the Old Testament and find one, not one. Never. None. And you know what? You can't go to the New Testament and find one either. None. Everything the Spirit of God says comes to pass. And we must, indeed, brethren, hold tightly to this doctrine, understanding full well where we go if we don't. You realize that if one doesn't trust the Word of God here, brethren, let's close our Bibles and go. Let's leave right now because what the preacher says what the elders say that all of it that authority is done away with the truthfulness is done away with because all of a sudden you can be Andy Stanley 
And you can decide whether you want to unhitch from the Old Testament. You can decide now. Just, I highly recommend James White's uh, YouTube from last week. Go look it up and look where he's gone. It's been coming a long time. He's been sliding a long time. Huh? I think Howard mentioned it at Bible study this morning. Hey, what does it matter if it came by a virgin? It matters. It matters. You know why it matters? Because God said it matters. Because it goes to his credibility, to his integrity, to the very word of God that you and I are here this morning to hear. And brethren, if we don't have that, let's go home. There's no reason to be here. None. Because pretty soon, it'll be Mike Stanley. (laughs) May it never be. It'll be Dean Stanley and Howard Stanley standing up here getting rid of our pulpit because people are scared of it, sitting in our little skinny jeans and just, hey, having a grand old time telling you about how many of the stories in the Bible are mythology, which is what he's saying now. That's where it goes, brethren. Let me tell you, this is where it goes. As soon as you remove the truthfulness and the authority of this book right here, you're done. It's over. This is not what Agabus did by any stretch of the imagination. He simply, in the spirit of the Old Testament prophets, did what Jeremiah did, did what Isaiah did, did what Ezekiel did, did what God called them to do. The word of God is pure and holy and perfect, and there are no contradictions. The only contradiction is the one in your mind. (laughs) As I said, that's one of the things... When the Lord saved me in 1987, the man that he used, he was an Arminian. <laughs> I mean, this guy, he was, he was Arminian to the max. But you know what he really instilled in me? Was the authority of Scripture. That it is God's Word. And when you don't understand it in one area, you better get moved. You don't move the Word, it moves you to understand what's taking place. It's the same thing here. Agabus did not, by any stretch of the imagination, have an open prophecy or a failed prophecy or anything of the such. It was infallible because the Spirit of God said it. Amen? Let's go back and finish here. Look at Acts chapter 21. Look there if you would. Acts chapter 21. Look at verses 12. 13 and 14. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place, besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not, only, not to be bound only, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Brethren, this is a fantastic place for a Christian to be. Do you understand what that statement, the will of the Lord, be done? What a glorious place that is for one to be. It is a safe place. It is an understanding of sovereign God working out everything whether it's a hardship that comes into your life or whether it's an ease that comes into your life, it is God working out His perfect will. And that's where the Christian should always be. I'm single right now. 
Oh, if you are so inclined to be married, be patient. Wait upon the Lord. Do it right. That is the Lord's will for you. You know how I know that? Because His Word tells me that. <laughs> My older children, I got, you know, they, they always come to me and say, Yeah, Dad, see, uh, well, oh, I can't point over here yet, but, uh, you know, you, you younger parents, your children will grow up. Amen. And there, there's some stages that we all go through. Amen. There's some stages where you're really close when they're little and young like that. Seth and I just had a conversation not too long ago, didn't we, about our upcoming years, how there's going to be some struggles. Brethren, it's good to warn your children that there may be some struggles as they grow older. But you still love them, still want to care for them, still want to teach them and pray for them, right? But there's a stage that they finally reach when they get a little older and Cole's over, what, what is it? Brother Cole, listen. There's nothing better when your child comes to you when they get into their 20s and they come along and they say, you know what, Dad, you were right. And you know what my response has been? Because it's happened on several occasions. I'm not right. You know who's right? God is right. All I did was teach you biblical principles. That's all I did. Because that's what God says. His word is always right, it's always true, and it's always good. Amen? It's a stunning thing. The Lord's will be done. As I said, this is a great place for one to be in your Christian life. The warnings from the Holy Ghost were used by God to prepare Paul not to stop him. He was not disobedient. He was not rebellious by any stretch. In fact... I'll close really with a practical point for all of us. I stole it from one, from a pastor that I thought it was really, really good. Listen to what he said. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. That's not what we like to do. <laughs> we don't like to choose God's will if it means I'm going to suffer. Paul did. The will of God was for him to go to, to uh, Jerusalem to deliver the money to bring relief and to preach the gospel there. That's a different thing, the pastor says. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. Listen. He chooses God's will, even if it means that he is going to suffer. That's the difference. This is what we see in Paul. This is what we see as he moves, as the Spirit of God leads him to Jerusalem to be with the other brethren. Amen. Let's uh, pray together this morning. Father, we again are so amazed at the depth of your word. The deeper we go, the deeper it goes. As I was thinking this morning when I was <clears throat> praying in my office, we have the word of God in our hands. The infallible word of God that is so deep. And yet here we sit as fallible men being used of God to preach the word, to teach the word of God, 
to edify the saints, to prepare the saints for when they leave this place, go out into the world, go to our jobs tomorrow, and being firmly fit with the Word of God. And Father, today, as I again have said, as we've heard from your Word and we've studied this out together, all it does is once again make that foundation even firmer. Knowing full well that what many have said about this text is so wrong and so unholy, so unbiblical. Now I know there's some good brothers who uh, have struggled with this. I've read many of them. But again, in simple faith, as you have given to us, when we consider that there's a discrepancy or there's a contradiction or there's this or that in the scriptures, we must be very careful. We must pray and ask you to get us right because there are no contradictions. There is no such thing in scripture. So, Father, we thank you for the clarity of your scripture this morning that you would teach us. We pray now that as we've heard your word, the sword of the Spirit, that the Spirit himself would take the words and that he would apply them to us. We can preach all day, but if the Spirit of God is not moving in the hearts of your people and applying the word, it's like preaching to the wall. So, Father, we pray that he will do what only he can do, that he will take this word to that place that only he can take it to, and that is down into the hearts of your people. Father, now as we gather around the Lord's table again to remember, to commemorate until you come again, we think of your death, your burial, your resurrection, your perfect sacrifice, your sinlessness, your holiness. And Father, thank you for reminding us that you took our place. If we're saved here this morning, you took our place. You were our substitute. You took the wrath of God that we deserved. And we were given, and in biblical terms, God imputed your righteousness to us. You, he gave it, if you will, he applied it to our account, our debt. And Father, we will never forget that. We will always be thankful and grateful. Father, now we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.